Well, thank you very much. Take your copies of the scriptures and turn back to the book of Ecclesiastes with me this morning. We're going to start with chapter 12, then we'll back up to chapter 8, which is our text for today. But go back to chapter 12 and verse 11 as I read this very, very important verse of scripture in relationship to this book that God has given us. So Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 11, as I said uh, when I read these verses a couple of weeks ago, uh, Solomon waits to the very end of the book to tell us the direction that he's really going. And so we see these verses as pivotal in the understanding. The words of wise men are like goads, and the masters of these collections are like well-driven nails that are given by one shepherd. Keep that passage in mind as we progress on, going back to chapter 8 here. You know, uh, we're all familiar with the uh, story of Cinderella and uh, how that uh, story had all of its problems and issues and then turned out, of course, so that everybody lived happily ever after. And I think down deep in the hearts of most people, there's a little Cinderella hanging in there, thinking that one day maybe everything will just turn out just fine. Uh, all, the, all the pieces of our life will come together. There'll be no sadness, no sorrow, and, and we'll live happily ever after. And yet the story of, of life and the story of Scripture is that's not the way it is. In this life we have troubles. There's plenty of problems. There's problems with us personally. Uh, the life without uh, problems waits for another life when Jesus Christ comes back at the blessed hope and takes us to be with himself. And so as long as we're in this planet, as long as we're in this life, we should be expecting trouble. And Solomon does not pull back from that at all in the book of Ecclesiastes. He tells us over and over that troubles will come. And so as we look at our own lives, we realize that we're never going to come to that castle in the sky without problems. Uh, we're never going to come to the place where our Prince Charming carries us off to some place. We're never going to come to a place where we don't have the issues. We're going to have a few balls and banquets that we enjoy, but we're also going to have times when our, our uh, coach turns into a pumpkin and our, my, our my horses turn into mice and life is tough. So what are you going to do then? When these things turn sour, when you have a hard time in life, when you're puzzled by whatever is coming your way, what are you going to do then? Uh, you're not going to be able to have any glass slippers. Your fairy, fairy godmothers are all, all on back order right now because of the pandemic. Uh, so uh, what's the alternative? Is there an alternative? Well, there is. And that alternative is found in, that God gives us. And much of that is given right here in the book of Ecclesiastes. God's, uh, God's alternative is that he doesn't promise to take away our troubles, but he promises that we can live a life of wisdom. And basically he lays out for us two different options of life, he, the life of foolishness and a life of wisdom. And when the difficult times come, as well as the good times, uh, there are two different ways that we can go about handling those things, wisely or foolishly. And so Solomon has been talking about that throughout this section. Chapter 6, 7, and 8 really is kind of, uh, kind of together. It's kind of a unit within the book. Uh, he's been talking here about wise living in a broken world. And he assures us that we're going to have problems. And that we're going to have things that come our way we do not understand. And more than that, there's going to be a lot of things that disturb us. And that takes us back to what we've been talking about in chapter 12, verse 11. It, Three, three key themes that run throughout the book that if you miss those themes, you miss the whole intention of Ecclesiastes and you misunderstand what is being said here. The first theme is the term under the sun that we've seen over and over. He's talking about life on this planet, the life under the sun, 
And in most cases, life under the sun, disconnected with God, no link to God. Life lived as if God did not exist. That is the key to understanding many of the things he's saying throughout the book. But when, then we go back to chapter 12 and verse 11, and we, as I read to you just a moment ago, the, the problems that we have, the issues under the sun, are, are used by God as, as goads to press us onward, to push us forward, to prod us on to something else. And that something else is the well-driven nails that are found here. Uh, these nails of truth given to us by one shepherd, Christ himself. And these are the things that these difficulties of life are to press us toward. And so Ecclesiastes all the way through is, is exposing for us the problems of life and telling us these problems have a purpose. They're not mindless. They're not meaningless. Their purpose is to press us on to the uh, truth that God wants us to to know in order that we might live for him. In chapter six, Solomon exposed the empty promise of wealth, the promises that wealth will solve our problems. He, he dismantled that. In chapter seven, he turns to the misunderstanding of God's design for sorrow and pain and suffering and difficulties. God has a plan with those two, and those are not mindless or meaningless either. And now in chapter 8, he is going to talk to us about some more perplexities, some more struggles that you and I have under the sun, and how to live with those wisely. So we can, choo we can choose to live foolishly, which most people do, or we can choose to live wisely as we're directed in the Word of God and in this passage of Scripture in particular. Now the first issue we'll look at then, the first problem, is that of, of submission and authority. In verses 1 through 5, let me read those for you, then I want to back off and take a look at some of this. Who is like the wise man, and who knows the interpretation of a matter? A wise man, a man's wisdom illuminates him and causes his stern face to beam. I say, keep the commandment of the king because of the oath before God. Do not be in a hurry to leave him. Do not join in an evil matter, for he will do whatever he pleases. Since the word of the king is authoritative, who will say to him, what are you doing? He who keeps the royal command experiences no trouble, for a wise heart knows the proper time and procedure. Now as we jump into this, I'm going to go a direction here that might be surprising at first. Having studied this intensely and looked at various commentators, uh, many of the best commentators do not believe he's talking about an earthly king here. At first, that seems to be what he's talking about, and it might be, at least partly, but I think he's talking about God as the heavenly king. I think he's talking about the authority of God himself, not, not the earthly king as such. And the reason why, briefly, is a number of, of reasons. First of all, the description here fits God better than it fits an earthly king. It is God who is in control of all things. It is God's who, whose word is supreme, and it's only God, in verse 5, who can promise to deliver us from trouble. Secondly, if he's talking about an earthly king, he's talking about a very limited or to a very limited group of people because very few people could ever come into a presence of a king. Uh, even remember back in Esther, uh, when Queen Esther wanted to go see her husband, the king, she had to follow a whole bunch of protocol to get there. He didn't just walk up and say, hi, honey, how you doing? That, that didn't happen back in those days when you were the king. And so if this is only about seeing the king or talking to the king, he's talking to a very limited group of people. And third, the protocol in the old, old days, in scriptural days, uh, were for going to see a king was very exact, very, very uh, uh, organized. People didn't come and go at a whim. Fourthly, uh, 
psalm has been asking deep questions and talking about deep questions of life, why would he switch all of a sudden to talk about protocol with a king? And then lastly, God himself is called a king many times in the scriptures, and so this would fit well. Now, if I'm wrong about that, if this is not about God as the heavenly king, um, and if it's about the authorities that God sets up, that still takes us to the same place. God is the ultimate kingmaker. He is the ultimate king, but also he's the one in charge of, of rulers over the earth. Either he sets them up or he allows them to be in the positions they're in. God is the ultimate kingmaker. And so we're talking here about authority and submission. You see, here's the problem I think he's really after. By nature, you and I are rebellious. We don't like authority. We don't like anyone telling us what to do. We, don't, we want to be in control of our own lives. We, we, don't want to be, we don't want anybody to come along and say, you do this or don't do that. We don't like that. Some people are worse at that than others. But um, all of us kind of buck against the authority. And yet authority and submission is part of the DNA of God's universe. Everywhere you look, God has set up authority and submission. He sets it up in the church. He sets it up in the home. He sets it up in government, if that's what he's talking about here. He sets it up at work. He sets it up in heaven. All the universe is governed by authority and submission. And yet our sinful nature resists obedience and authority. We do not want to be under somebody else's rulership. And some people are so defiant that if anybody tells them to do anything, even if it's good for them, uh, they don't want to do it because they don't want to do it. They're under the authority of no one. They want to be their own captain of their own fate and soul. And so if that's what he's talking about here, uh, either God is the heavenly king or the kings he sets up, the authorities he sets up, it comes down to pretty much the same thing, that attitude. He wants to talk to us about that. To live in defiance of authority that God has set up, either himself or others, that he's ordained, is a dead-end street. That's what he's talking about. What does the, the wise person do in relationship to authority? Well, let's look at these verses. Verses 2 to 4 once again. I say, keep the commandment of the king because of the oath before God. Do not be in a hurry to leave him. Do not join in an evil matter, for he will do whatever he pleases. Since the word of the king is authoritative, who will say to him, what are you doing? I think, again, he's talking mainly about God, and he's basically saying this, you may not understand the ways of God. He's been talking about that in ch chapter 6 and 7. But that is no excuse not to obey him. And it's also because we don't necessarily agree with everything that people over us are saying. doesn't give us the right to defy them unless they're telling, taking us into a sinful situation. And if you do so, you're going to suffer the consequences of doing that. Now, at Christmas this year, you're going to get some gifts, and especially if you have children, you're probably going to get some gifts under, that they'll open up on Christmas morning. And it's always interesting, isn't it? You get open up all this stuff. If you're like us, you've got the grandkids over in the family, and we open up all this stuff, and the living room is an absolute chaos. Paper everywhere, strings here, boxes here. And some of those gifts have to now be assembled. Okay? And then the kids want to do it right now. 
in the midst of all that stuff, right? And so you start trying to assemble, and being the wise and smart people that we are, we're not going to follow the instruction manual. We can do it ourselves. Who needs instructions? And so we chuck that along with the wrapping paper and start to put together what we have found out you need a PhD in physics to do. And as you put that together, you get done, and you find out you've got three parts left over. Now what are you going to do? It isn't going to work right, and you lost the instructions. Now you're a mess. Well, that's kind of what he's saying here. The, the average person wants to go it alone. The average person is not interested in instructions, even God's instructions. Otherwise, we would all be deep students of the Word of God, which we ought to be, but often we, we aren't. We don't need instructions. We resist instructions, and we pay the consequences for that. And so he's saying a wise person, the wise will follow the instructions that God gives us as our authoritative person, the authoritative of God, and those he's placed under us. Now, what happens if you don't do that? What happens if you resist obedience? Well, then we have struggles and problems, unnecessary consequences. What happens if you, if you wisely follow those instructions that God gives us in the face of, uh, of whatever authority might be there. Well, a number of things are resulting. First of all, joy. Look at verse 1. Who is like the wise man who knows the interpretation of a matter? A, a man's wisdom illuminates him and causes his stern face to beam. In other words, what's in our heart will eventually get to our face. So when we look at somebody and they, we see them constantly scowling, and, and mumbling and face down. We know their heart's not joyful, right? But when the heart is joyful, it shows up in our face. That's a God's design. God's design is that we joyfully follow the authority of himself and of those he's put over us when we can and when we should, which is most of the time, and that brings us a joy in life. Augustine, in his great book, his greatest book, the, his Confessions, said this, and this is a, you know, almost 2,000 years ago. He said, the happy life is this, to rejoice unto thee, in thee, and for thee, that it is, and there is no other. The happy life, then, he says, is when we rejoice unto God, in God, and for God. And then on the very next page, he said this, why are they not happy? Why are most people not happy? Because they are more entirely occupied with other things which rather make them miserable than that which would make them happy. That is the condition of humanity. Most people are invested in and focused on things that will never make them happy, never bring them joy, but they think it will. That's foolish living because God has given other instructions that are wise. Here's another result of following him in, in wisdom here, and that is, we'll come to no harm. Look at verse 8. He who keeps a royal command experiences no trouble. Now, he's not promising some kind of prosperity gospel here. The word trouble means evil. And so he's saying that evil things, the consequences of sin, will not be yours if you follow God's wisdom, if you follow his directions. And sin complicates every aspect of life because that's what sin does. Thirdly, we'll learn to wait for God's timing. Patience here. End of verse 5. For a wise heart knows the proper time and procedure. 
For there is a proper time and a procedure for every delight, though a man's trouble is heavy upon him. There are times when we wonder what in the world is God doing with our lives? Is God really in charge? Is, is, he, is he fumbling the ball in relationship to us? Why doesn't he act more quickly? Patience is hard, isn't it? I like what John, uh, what John Piper said concerning patience. It's a good insight. He said this, Impatience is a form of unbelief. It's what we, be, what we begin to feel when we start to doubt the wisdom of God's timing or goodness or God's guidance. That's something worth pondering this afternoon, folks. Impatience is a form of unbelief. The wise person has learned that God's timing is always best, even if it doesn't seem to be best at this moment. And then fourth and finally, he will observe that God controls all things, not us. God controls, not us. Verse 7 says this, if, if no one knows what will happen, who will tell him when it will happen? No man has authority to restrain the wind with the wind, or authority over the day of death, and there's no discharge in the time of war, and evil will not deliver those who practice it. So we want to be in control, and Solomon very clearly says, you're not. Look, look at the five different facets that he mentions here. We don't know the future. We want to know, and we want to control. We don't know the future. We don't control nature. We can't control the wind. We, we cannot determine a, the day of our death. We're limited by the authority of others. And then look at that last part. Sin never comes to the rescue. It says, evil will not deliver those who practice it. Isn't it an odd thing in our thinking that we think that actually sin will rescue us? That we can do something sinfully and behave sinfully and somehow it's going to work out. Sin does not rescue us. It never will rescue us. And yet the foolish person believes that it does. It's God who determines these things. The fool kicks against God's sovereignty. The wise rejoice. B.B. Warfield was perhaps the greatest theologian America has ever produced. Most people don't know much about him, but he was a great theologian. He wrote these words. I want you to listen, and I'm going to tell you a little story behind them. He said, A firm faith in the universal providing of God is the solution to all earthly troubles. Now, I'm going to read that again, but before I do, I want to tell you something. He wrote those words as he sat at the bedside of his invalid wife, who became an invalid almost immediately after they got married and was in that condition for the rest of her life. Benjamin Warfield was a, a seminary professor and wrote numerous unbelievably good books on theology and almost never left her bedside, only on occasion to do what he had to do. And at her bedside, in that condition for 50 years, he wrote these words. And let me read them again. He says, A firm faith in the universal providing of God is a solution of all earthly troubles. That's worth pondering. Well, what about somebody who's not a theologian, a person who's gone through hard times and, and difficulties, but not a great theologian? How about uh, our friend Joni Erisontada? who's been in a wheelchair almost all of her life. She writes this, God permits what he hates to achieve what he loves. Think about that this afternoon. God permits what he hates to achieve what he loves. And she writes that from her wheelchair. It's not easy to uh, let God be God. We want to do the job for him. 
And yet the scriptures are very clear. He's in charge. He's the authority. Wise people follow that authority. Foolish people fight against it. Here's another set of issues, and that has to do with encountering injustice. In verses 9 through 12, he says this concerning injustice. All this I've seen and applied my mind to every deed that was, has been done under the sun, wherein a man has exercised authority over another man to his hurt. So then I've seen the wicked buried, those who used to go in and out from the holy place, and they are soon forgotten in the city where they did thus, this too is fertility. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, still I know that it will be well for those who fear God, who fear him openly, but it will not be well for the evil man, and he will not lengthen his days like a shadow because he does not fear God. A question that we find over and over and over in Scripture, and Solomon talks about it a lot in Ecclesiastes, is why do so many good people suffer and so many evil people do well and prosper? It's all over Scripture, and people have been asking that question forever. Why do the Ebenezer Scrooges of life do fine and the tiny Tim suffer? Why is that true? And that bothers us. And it really bothers us if we're in that situation. If, we're, if all is going well for us, maybe we don't think about it. But when injustice comes in our life, when life seems very unfair, that's a hard thing. My father was, uh, came out of the Great Depression and World War II. He was a John Wayne kind of guy, not a kind of guy that opened up and talked to you much. So I remember vividly the one time he did. Uh, we were talking, uh, my father, we were, we were talking, I was probably early 20s. And you have to know, my father, who was this John Wayne kind of guy, went through the war and all those kind of things, suffered a massive heart attack at age 43. Uh, he probably shouldn't have lived, but he did. But he lived as a semi-invalid the rest of his life, never able to do the things he enjoyed, uh, only working on occasion. A few years later, he had open-heart surgery. And uh, later on, he would die at age 61 from open, another open-heart surgery. But I remember sometime, probably in his, in his mid-50s, when he was no longer able to work, no longer able to do the things he wanted to do. Uh, and I, I was talking to him. My father had come to Christ when he was in his mid-30s, had walked with the Lord and lived with the Lord, raised us to follow Christ, and uh, was doing quite well with those things when he had his heart attack. And then he went through all those years. And then one day as I was talking to him about things, he said this to me. He said, I do not understand why God has given me all these problems, all these health issues, when I know people at work who live like the devil, who run around on their wives, who cheat and lie and steal, and they live wonderful, happy, prosperous lives. I don't understand that. The issue my father was wrestling with was, is God fair? Was God fair? And because he couldn't, at that point, come to a grips on that, he suffered in many ways as a result of that. You might be there too. I trust my father resolved that much better later in life. But we struggle when life isn't fair and when injustices surround us. And it's easy then become, to become bitter. Go to Psalm 73 with me. Perhaps the greatest commentary in Scripture on this subject is Psalm 73. 
the psalmist here, who apparently is Asaph, is writing about this very issue. I, mean, I'm not, I wish I could have time to just go through the whole thing, but a few verses here that we'll look at. In verse 2, he says, But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling, my steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant, and I saw the prosperity, as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. When I looked around and saw how prosperous the wicked were, it bothered me great, gravely, so much so that I just about slipped. My, my thinking, he says, is that if this is how God treats his children, why should I bother? And he stays in that state for a while, but and he starts to turn, as you know, back in verse 16. He says, when I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until, and you ought to circle that word until, until I came into the sanctuary of God, the presence of God in the Old Testament. Then I perceived their end. Surely you have set them in slippery places, you have cast them down to destruction. How they, they you know, are destroyed in a moment, they are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. It wasn't until he, he, he came into the presence of God, as he says here, and realized that things are not always as they seem, that he began to put it together and realize that God is in control. Just stopping back to verse 25, when he pulls it together, we, we see that as he moves from his self-pity and from his questioning the, the justice of God, he ends up in a glorious way in verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you, and beside you I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. What a change. Why did he change? Had his circumstances changed? Not at all. He's still going through the same issues. The prosperous were still being, uh, the, the wicked were still being prosperous. And he may have been going through hard times. But when he focused on that which mattered, which was God, and God's ways, and God's wisdom, he began to change. Graham Scroggie, a famous preacher of the past, said that there are some problems which intellect cannot solve, but which communion with God will resolve. I think those are wise words. You know, I think of a scientist. This, you've all seen videos, or maybe even seen it in person, in which a, a scientist takes a, a mouse and puts it in a maze. And the goal is to see how quickly that mouse can get through the maze and how smart it is. Apparently some mice are smarter than others, I don't know. But uh, from the perspective of the scientist, this is a snap, right? He sees it all. He knows where the maze goes to. But for the mouse, it's not so easy. Uh, they don't know where it ends up. That's kind of what we're looking at here. We have, God has the perfect vantage point he sees. The end for the beginning, the beginning from the end. He sees it all. He's in charge of it all. We're in the maze of life. We don't always get it. Our goal is not to always get it. That's what Solomon is saying throughout the book. We don't always get it. But we know the one who does. And that's the key to this here. Let's go to the third thing he wants to talk about back in chapter 8, verse 14. And that is kind of a corollary. He's looking at a broader picture now of the unfairness of the world and verse 14 gives us the problem he wants to address. There is fertility which is done on earth. That is, there are, are righteous men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. 
On the other hand, there are evil men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I say this too is fertility. Solomon is summing up, I think, here at this, at this point, everything he's been saying since chapter 6, verse 1. Chapter 6, 7, and 8 is all about this issue. These unfairness, the injustices that he is recognizing in life. He is seeing life under the sun. Here's how people live under the sun on this planet. And he sees it as, as he came right out of the chute in chapter 1. This is vanity. It's chasing the winds. It's meaningless. Because life on this planet under the sun without connection to God doesn't really make sense. And there are no answers. And he's been talking about that throughout this section. It's like, like God has put us in a dark cave with no flashlight and says, go for it. And people do the best they can. And some people come up with some pretty good ideas, but they don't find the solution. And that's the issue he's talking about. So there's the problem. Now, what is the wise way of dealing with this? There's three parts he wants to talk about. So it gets happier at this point, I hope, for us. First of all, we need to commit ourselves to God and his plan. In this life that we don't always get or understand, there must be a commitment based on faith in the wisdom and the greatness of God. In verse 12, he says it this way, Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, still I know that it will be well for those who fear God and fear him openly. Here is another key of the book. And he peppers this throughout the book and we'll end the book with this. And that is the fear of God. The fear of God, as we've tried to express, is, is recognizing his, his sovereignty. It's recognizing his righteous judgments. It's recognizing his majesty. It's recognizing his glory and his beauty. It is the one, he says, who fear God and fear him openly that will find the life that God wants us to have. The one who fears God, then, uh, let me give you a, a number of things here. The one who fears God has submitted to his will ahead of time. The one who fears God has embraced his wisdom, even when, when our wisdom has run out. The one who fears God has chosen to worship God, even when we don't understand God or life. The one who fears God is the one who says, God, you are God and I am not. And I see your awesomeness and your greatness. And I stand before you in awe and fear because of who you are. Without this fear of God, without this rudder in our lives, we're like a ship without a rudder. We're just meaningless. We just wander about, searching from this, that, this point and that point, looking for something to satisfy. We never find it because we don't have that rudder. We don't have that anchor that we need. Now, the rest of what Solomon has to say makes no sense, folks, until you grasp what I just said and until you personally have chosen to let God be God in your life. That you will worship him, you will fear him, you will trust him, you will worship, you will see his magnificence and his greatness, even when life is perplexing and confusing to you and doesn't make sense. It is at that point that we push forward. And when we push forward, we find some interesting things here. In verse 15, we find life can be enjoyed. And we're almost surprised, by the way, when we come to this verse. After all, he said, all the lead in, and verse 15 kind of catches us by surprise. He says this, So I commended pleasure 
For there is nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and to drink and to be merry, and this will stand by him in his toils throughout the days of his life which God has given him under the sun. The one who has committed himself to, the, to God in the fear of God, that person is now in a position to receive the joys of life that God gives. In other words, God gives approval for him to enjoy the gifts that he gives him. In chapter 7, verse 14, he said it this way, In the day of prosperity, be happy. In the day of adversity, consider. God has made one as well as the other. So you see, he's talking about these two aspects of life. In the days of trouble, trust him. Believe in him. We tend to want to complain and gripe and get upset. God says, keep in mind that in the days of trouble, consider. God has made that. In the days of happiness, some of us have a harder time being happy than we do sad. When, when things are going well, what do we do? Well, we end up going after wrong things if we're not careful. We, we make other things that are, are, nearly as, are not nearly as important the most important things of our life because it's easy. And things are going well. He says, when the days of prosperity, be happy, enjoy those days. But also remember, God made them both. So Solomon has already warned us concerning this happiness part. God, he's, he's warned us about the stuff syndrome, about thinking that life is made up of what we accumulate, of what we can buy, of what we own, of our wealth and our accomplishments. He's been warning about that all the way through. Life, those things do not bring happiness. I was reading recently in a book, a little booklet by Henry David Thoreau, a couple of things, but this was out of Walton toward the end of his book. He says, this is an unsaved man. I want you to know that. This is a man, I find him fascinating because he comes up, he recognizes the same problems that Solomon does. He comes up with a lot of wise things, but he never comes to the right conclusion because he does not know Christ. But he said this toward the end of his book, superfluous wealth can buy superfluous only. Money is not required to buy one, nece one necessary of the soul. Think about that. An unsaved man who has recognized that money cannot buy one thing that is necessary for our souls. Solomon had been saying that even better all the way through here, throughout the passage of Scripture. And so he says in verse 15, I commend pleasure. If you are one who fears God... A one who's walking with God, one who is committed to God, then I commend pleasure. Enjoy the life that he gives you. And notice the things he's talking about. Not things you can buy with money necessarily. Enjoy the simple pleasures, the simple gifts that God has given us. The, 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 a beautiful day. The nature God has given us. The change of the seasons. The love of a family. A good meal. We don't enjoy those things often, folks, until we've lost them. How many people, when they've lost these things, look back and say, oh, how wonderful that was. But did we enjoy them when we were in them? That's a sad feature of the human nature. When we dis well, and, and then when all of this, we discover something of even greater value than these things, we find that God is enough. And when God is enough, when God is our portion, everything else is kind of gravy on the biscuit icing on the cake. Here's another thing he wants to say in, in verses 16 and 17. 
with all the seven, having said all of that, we'll never totally understand everything in this life. We're never going to get it. Verse 16, he was wise and he tried. He says, when I gave my heart to know wisdom and to see the task which has done, been done on the earth, even though one should never sleep day or night, and I saw every work of God, I concluded that man cannot discover the work which is done under the sun, even though man should seek laboriously, he will not discover, and though the wise man should say, I know, he cannot discover. Solomon spent his whole life searching out the mysteries, trying to figure out life around him, but he never came to a full understanding. What are we supposed to do with that? Well, he says, you don't understand life, but you can understand the one who gave life. It is not necessarily up to us to understand all things, it's us to, up to us to commit our way to the one who does. We're not to live for the gifts he gives us. We're to live for the giver who gives those gifts. And such a life is far superior than the restless life that most people live. The life devoted to the accumulation of stuff and the many, many activities that is part of our lives and the disappointments that come. Ecclesiastes is in the Bible not to depress us, not to discourage us, but to present to us the fertility of life lived for the stuff in life instead of living for the giver of life. It's only when we grasp that that we begin to understand how God wants us to live. We don't necessarily figure out all the puzzle pieces, but we understand how God wants us to live. And I love this passage here in, in that verse 14. He says, enjoy what God has given you. Again, Henry David Thoreau said it in a little booklet called Walking. He, he was out walking one day and he saw a bunch of cows. Is that, that's the right, the bunch isn't the right word, is it? A herd of cows. And they were bouncing around in the field, he said, like kittens. He said, I, you rarely see cows jumping around like kittens. And so he watched them at a distance. He didn't want to disturb them. They were having fun. They were playing. And as he watched them, he, he thought to himself, if the farmer came up right now and said, whoa, they would all stop and act like cows again instead of kittens. And then he said this, once again, very insight for a, for a godless man. He said this, who but the evil one, Satan, cried woe to mankind. Who but Satan told mankind, don't enjoy life. That's a trick of the devil, folks. The devil wants you to be miserable. He wants you to be unhappy. He wants you to be, be down. Christ says, I want to give you a gift. I want to give you a gift of the things that really matter in life. The things to really enjoy. And it's not the stuff everybody's chasing for. It's a precious, simple things that God gives the one who fears him, who knows him, who is committed to him, who worships him. Out of that comes these great gifts that he gives us. And then never forget the true great gift, the greatest of all gifts, being reconciled with God, salvation in Him. It is God's design that we enjoy these gifts, but Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says this, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works that anyone should boast. And so all that Solomon is saying never leads to those particular verses, but everything is headed that direction. Life is fruitless, life is meaningless, unless there's a connection with the God of the universe by faith alone and reconciled with him, and that is the greatest of all gifts. 
If you're here today and you are, are not sure of your salvation, keep this in mind. The great gift giver has given us the greatest of all gifts, and that is to be right with him. And when we're right with him, all these other pieces can fall into place for us to live wisely with him. Father, we thank you for your word. This, the, you know, all of Ecclesiastes has been a challenge for us. It's not the simple, easy passages of scripture, but I trust we're getting the point of what you're saying about life and about yourself and about us. Father, we pray today for those that are here that may not know you as Savior and Lord. May this be a, the day, Lord, they recognize that they need the greatest of all gifts, the gift for the forgiveness of their sins, the gift to be reconciled with Almighty God, the gift of salvation. And may you draw them to yourself even today. In Christ's name, amen.